0: Hey everyone, welcome to the DeFi Scoop, your inside scoop into everything DeFi. I'm your host, Dave Leibowitz, and in this episode, we have my former colleague, the founder of Frax Finance and Everpedia, Sam Kazemian. Here we go into everything from algorithmic stablecoins so what makes them tick, why they will work, to NFTs, he talks about some of the NFTs he likes, what he's collecting, what makes NFTs tick, and we also get into what it takes to be a builder in crypto and DeFi. So stick around, this is a really good episode, lots of good conversation. I will be making more of these things, so if you like what you see, please like, subscribe, and we'll keep going. And thanks, so enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to the DeFi Scoop, I'm here with Sam Kizemian. Sam is the founder of Frax and founder of Everpedia. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing
1: great, thanks for having me Dave, it's always fun.
0: Yeah, and I'm not sure if you noticed, but I am wearing the uh, classic Thug Wikipedia shirt. <laughs> Bruh, uh, they don't even make nice. the shirt anymore. Uh, fun fact: If you go to ThugWikipedia.com, it redirects to Everpedia.
1: Those are the those are the good old days, right, <laughs> Dave? Uh, it would have it would have been an NFT if we could have made it one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, but you guys are making NFTs um, at Everpedia. And uh, I actually recently brought the uh, GCJ NFC. I thought that was a really cool collab you
1: did. Nice, nice. Yeah, that was actually one of my favorites. Uh, we had the the first uh, election results hashed and, and put on the blockchain with uh, the Associated Press. Uh, that was the uh, NFT that we did. It was actually our first one. I think it sold for um, about $200,000, which was very... Very cool success, and we're doing a lot of collaborations that are uh, really popular, but more like sets now instead of uh, kind of one-off historic kind of uh, things, because I think more people can participate. So it's been going really well in the NFT department at Everpedia.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How could I forget (laughs) the presidential election one? Like that was really exciting Um, while I was at Everpedia making that happen. Like we were honestly a part of history there. The first selection with the race calls called on chain so like that was just yeah really that bad. was uh, uh that'll go down in history <laughs> um but yeah i was gonna ask you um what do you think makes an nfc valuable per se uh as compared to the traditional art world like i know you're like a, you're a big collector of nfts i've seen you know you have like a punk you have a couple of hash masks like what do you think makes an NFT unique
1: yeah, I mean that's such an open-ended but good question that I I think like that that answer itself is is uh as kind of as complicated as asking someone like what's the meaning of the universe to be honest right it's like there's <laughs> Honestly, just so okay. many yeah <laughs> so like I think well at least for me it's difficult to say but at least for me it's uh, a combination of historic uh you know um kind of collective, historic collectability aesthetics and kind of uh you know withstanding the test of time of of it being a prominent thing um but then also just some nfts like i like sewer rats they're just they're new like uh you know the these avatar project ones i just like their aesthetics a lot um i I don't know you know how uh you know big or small or whatever it'll remain i just really like them for the art so there's different things for different yeah,
0: I just like the rats, literally. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think what makes a NFC, especially with the crypto and with like with blockchain, is like how it uses the uses blockchain itself. Like, I think what made AP really cool was it was like it was the first timestamped uh, election, and so like you could like see the election on chain, the results on chain. It was a very unique and historical significant piece. I think the Juicy J ones are cool too because. In a way, like, it's the same thing. When I was, like, looking at the properties of the music video, one of the Let Me See one, it was, like, the date of the music video. You had the brain chain logo and stuff. I like the way it incorporates crypto in it. So I think the NFTs that incorporate crypto are the ones or, like incorporate blockchain somehow instead of just, you know, slapping a piece of art. Uh, and calling it an NFT, i think those are the ones that seem like they're going to succeed
1: yeah definitely like i said i think there's some uh, element of like historic uh historic lindy effect so to speak on mm-hmm. it but then also uh one thing i learned is it, it does need to have a crypto native element and it doesn't have to be only crypto native but to be honest like uh i think the the best nfts do you know, respect the fact that this is a crypto-native environment. So you yeah. kind of have to have some kind of real use of the the tech or some some element of it.
0: Yeah, and even like for NFTs that are historically significant in just being NFTs, whether it's CryptoPunks, you know, considered like the first NFTs, you know, kind of the gold standard NFTs. Or I think Mooncats are super cool. Like the the whole story behind Mooncats, it was just an archaeological dig. And a bunch of people started minting it from the contract. I minted some from the contract.
1: Yeah, Yeah. definitely.
0: But outside of NFTs, uh, your main project is Frax, which is an algorithmic stablecoin. And algorithmic stablecoins might be, or actually, I think they definitely are the most hated aspect of DeFi. Because, you know, there's they're hard to pull off, and we've seen a lot of disasters. Like, majority of August stable coins, not only do they not work, but they fail spectacularly. Like, you look at, you know, the early ones, like ESD or DSD, that, like, you know, they haven't reached, gone back to their peg. You look at iron, um, and how that it just exploded magnificently. Went from being mentioned by Mark Cuban, and opposed to just it was even covered in Fortune, like, uh, in Forbes and stuff, The whole that whole fiasco. So, why are Algo stablecoins hated so much?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was actually just on a blockchain debate podcast defending, you know, Algo stablecoins, and uh, um, they're easy to hate, right? I mean, first of all, I, I usually like to define, you know, concretely what uh, I actually think of as, as algorithmic stablecoins because it's, it's just so easy to kind of have this sm- mushy definition that's very hard to actually pin down. So my own definition of algorithmic stablecoins is literally, uh, a on-chain decentralized stablecoin that's price stable and has the same trust guarantees as something like Bitcoin and Ethereum. So what that means is it has to not have custodial risk. It has to not, uh, you know, have any of these things that it needs to run on, you know, uh, centralized oracles or addresses or centralized custodial collateral or anything like that. An algorithmic stablecoin is something that is basically entirely on-chain. It's almost like a price-stable Bitcoin or, or Ethereum. Uh, that's my definition of an algorithmic stablecoin. So that's what I clearly define as it. And obviously, we don't really have those. Uh, I think, obviously, FRAX will, will be the, the first one. But... I don't think we have those so it's really easy to hate on that
0: yeah like you were saying well because right now the vast majority of stable coins are just fiat backed. they're basically back either like dollars or treasury notes or they're supposed to be backed by those in a bank um and they really underpin all of DeFi. and honestly i don't think crypto would be where it is today without stable coins they were a big part of the run in 2017 they're a p- big part of the run now um why do you think algo stablecoins can be pulled off?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think stablecoins as an asset class are one hundred percent one of the biggest, if not the biggest, after you know crypto volatile assets themselves. Like that's that's one of the most important things that I, I think of. Second of all, um, you know, it's it's difficult to explain, but I, in an abstract sense, I just think algorithmic stablecoins are kind of like uh, modern monetary theory, but on chain to, in, in an automated form, right? And so, one of the things is is that I don't see why that is impossible. Like just logically speaking, I don't see why that's impossible. I think the execution of it is extremely difficult. I think everyone that is uh, thinks they're geniuses on Twitter that uh, is like, oh, this will like never work and blah blah blah, and they think they're they're really smart and, and stuff, but all of their critiques and things like that are just the the most mundane and, and least original uh, things that anyone can think of. I think those people don't know what they're talking about and they just feel really, really cocky about being able to point to really low quality projects and be like, see, look, I'm right. I'm, I'm smart. Algo stablecoins don't work. But um, every day that, you know, Frax holds its peg perfectly that uh, like it already has. And it grows and it gets bigger. It's a counterexample and counter data point to uh, everyone else. So it's a, it's pretty cool to really just go against the, the narrative that it's not possible.
0: Yeah people definitely have like a certain excitement and a certain glee when they dunk at Aglo coins because it's just so easy to dunk up. Like most of them have failed. But Frax is out there every day proving that wrong and you guys launched in December and to this day, FRAX hasn't broke its peg, which is really amazing because not even, you know, centralized stable coins or DAI can say that.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, in, in the interest of being fair, DAI is much older than FRAX. So I I, yeah. I think if we have like, a you know, um, at least one year or more uh, history of holding the peg perfectly, we can uh, then kind of. And maybe dunk on Dai a little bit, but yeah. um, but but Dai has worked fairly fairly well, and you know recently actually they've started using a lot more USDC, which has gotten them uh, some some heavy cr- criticism. But uh, yeah, Frax has held its back perfectly for over six months now, going on seven.
0: Yeah, I remember when we used to live together when Frax was in its basically adulation phase, and you were watching. Rob Schiller videos about economics and trying to get, like, the, uh, get a background and get kind of more context of, like, okay, like, if I were, if an algal coin were to be built, what would it look like? How would it function? So in those, like, early few years, because has really been in development since 2018, like, what went into it uh, intellectually kind of like, what is the intellectual kind of context and background of Frax? And like, what, what did you use to inform yourself? And like, how did it evolve over, over time in those early few years?
1: Yeah. I mean, well, you, you really have seen the, the whole, uh, <laughs> timeline from, from really ideation, to be honest, it was just an idea in, in 2018 and 2019, it just really uh, starting out is kind of a glimmer in, in my eye, so to speak. But mm-hmm. uh, heavy development really began in early 2020. So that's uh, in terms of code and, and finalizing the, the specs and, and the white paper and stuff. So um, so yeah, I mean, it just goes to show like I always had and did have a very deep interest in uh, DeFi and stable coins even before the word DeFi was actually a uh, thing. Right. And, and so I thought that this area would be absolutely huge. And, you know, at the center of crypto, it's good to, it's good to kind of feel, uh, kind of vindicated in that. <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure. Um, so what is the secret sauce that makes a good algorithmic stablecoin?
1: Oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I think the, the real thing is kind of what Frax employs is that, uh, one of the first premises that we started with was that there, there can't be 0% collateral. Now, now it's like everyone's come to their senses after cracks. Right. And, uh, people know that, okay, all of these early ideas of like, uh, basis signer chairs and stuff with zero collateral, with just the kind of share or governance token being the entire thing that's supposed to stabilize the money supply is complete, uh, nonsense, right? It's just a complete income, System, it's just completely out of uh, you know out of left field. It doesn't work, um, and now we have data for it. Um, with Frax, we actually named it after our idea of fractional algorithmic um, stablecoin. And so the whole point is, it's a hybrid model, and the collateral ratio dynamically adjusts based on the actual price of the stablecoin. So the point is that every stablecoin, whether it's a, it's a central bank, and it's, it's a traditional you know, sovereign currency. Uh, if you think of the currency of stablecoin or a stablecoin protocol on-chain, uh, they need a balance sheet, right? They need collateral. They need you know, capital to be able to manipulate uh, and conduct monetary policy. So that's the first main thing that we realized that if there's ever going to be any kind of algorithmic stablecoin, it's going to require a balance sheet to exist, so that's why Frax basically has a fractional approach. We we call it, uh, you know, the first fractional stablecoin, and I think now everyone's really, uh, from you know, one way or another, has understood that, right? All of the other algorithmic stablecoins in the space are kind of variations and flavors of this theme, where the idea is, hey, we have some collateral or in, you know, Faye's case, which is another interesting uh, project, is we have some liquidity uh, and it is essentially, you know, backing Faye or essentially keeping the price, uh you know, at peg, but it's not one-to-one, right? There isn't enough liquidity. If everyone were to come and like sell the stable coin, it wouldn't be possible to get a dollar. The same thing with frax as fractional reserve is if everyone came to, you know, basically redeem fracks just for collateral, unless the collateral ratio increases and then, uh, which it does reflexively. But in an instant, you know, there isn't enough collateral uh, in moment in time for for everyone. So the ideas are the same. I think we really pioneered the concept of you can have an algorithmic system that doesn't necessarily need to be uh, one-to-one backed. I think that's how traditional, you know, central banking and, and stuff actually works with a balance sheet that is not over collateralized with the nation's
0: currency, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, I was thinking about this recently. Like would you say when for you know for the longest time a lot of currencies were just backed by gold, or like they claim to be backed by gold. You know, the US only got out of, got off the gold standard technically in nineteen seventy one. Is that a good compare? is that a fair comparison to say with that you know the US dollar is kind of like hybrid collateralized by gold and then in a way when it became fully fiat it became algorithmic in a sense is that a stretch to say
1: no i actually like that view right and and so like some, something i actually say is like uh even the the dollar wasn't uh an algorithmic stable coin <laughs> until nixon pulled the uh, rug of the gold right pulled the gold standard <laughs> exactly out, right so like the the cool thing about frax is it's all algorithmic and on-chain in the sense that everyone can see the collateral ratio if it's going up or down. Everyone can, uh, you know, see what the reserves are, and they can make, you know, free market decisions of whether to hold the stable coin, to use it, to sell it, uh, you know, to get rid of it, whatever they want. And if the collateral ratio does go down slowly and it becomes more and more algorithmic, that just literally means by definition, uh, that that's what the market uh, is okay with and, and what they, they want, right? Because every part of this is on-chain, public, and, you know, by, uh, you know, by market forces, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, FRAX, like, I like to think of FRAX 1.0 is that the hybrid model you talked about, just, the, you know, with the cloudization radio, as confidence increases, the system expands, the ratio goes down, Uh, If the system contracts, it goes up. Uh, So that was really the, you know, first AMO. And now Frax is a whole host of AMOs. So can you define what an AMO is and some Frax AMOs that you have deployed right now?
1: Yeah, so basically what what we invented for Frax V2 is these things called algorithmic market operations controllers. And so the idea behind that is uh, essentially... If you think of an algorithmic stablecoin, it's essentially like I was saying, modern money theory, which means that you can increase and decrease the money supply to change its purchasing power and, and its value, right? And the the whole point here is that there's a lot of things in DeFi a stablecoin can integrate into, right? And for example, curve, uniswap, you know, lending on compound, cream, and all these things, right? And the important thing is we we realized you can algorithmically create integrations on a protocol level with all of these protocols and essentially expand and retract the, the frack supply um, literally into and out of these, these protocols. So for, I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a curve AMO, which basically is for expanding and retracting frack supply into our curve pool. So for example, if, you have this curve pool that has a lot of three CRV tokens, so the price of Frax is actually over one dollar, right? Frax, let's say, is a dollar and one cent in this curve pool. Then the protocol actually mints more Frax into it to even the price right back to a dollar, right? The AMO actually prints Frax. Uh, yes, out of thin air is a lot is a lot of what people like to point out, but it prints money and it places it in the pool to stabilize this uh, price back to PEG, back to exactly a dollar. And what it does is it gets Curve LP tokens for that, right? So let's say in this example, it prints 5 million fracks, places it in the Curve pool, it gets 5 million uh, Curve LP tokens. Then now the price of FRAX is restored in the curve pool. Uh, algorithmically, you know, this doesn't require uh, governance votes or, or anything like that. The whole point is this is decentralized and automated. And then let's say the other way, right? Let's say now uh, people are selling FRAX into the curve pool. Uh, you know, people want other stable coins. And let's say the, the price of FRAX is now 99 cents instead of a dollar and one, right? It's, it's under the peg, right? And... Now, what's interesting is the AMO can do the exact opposite of the market operation before, right? It has 5 million uh, Curve LP tokens that it, that it had from depositing the, the FRAX expansion before. What it can do now is it takes its 5 million LP tokens and it redeems 5 million FRAX, right? And it takes the FRAX and burns it, right? It retracts the supply of FRAX in the open market, By 5 million, by what it actually, you know, had printed before. And so this contracts the supply of FRAX, right? Then it should uh, raise the the price of FRAX up from, you know, 99 cents, probably back to close to a dollar in the curve pool, right? And so these kinds of expansion and retraction uh, modules, right, we call them AMOs, can be deployed kind of anywhere to keep the FRAX supply uh, properly, uh, expanding and retracting at uh, peg. Like for example, we could build a lending AMO that literally mints fracks into uh, cream, for example, and allows people to borrow fracks directly from the protocol, but by paying an interest rate in the, in the, uh, in, in the cr- cream protocol, for example, or if we, uh, get on Aave or compound, we can build lending AMOs for those. And then to retract the supply when, when the protocol needs the borrowers to stop borrowing and start repaying, the protocol will take out the a lot of the fracks that it had minted in there, thus increasing the interest rate, right? Mm-hmm. And basically pulling uh, the uh, fracks in there so that people have to pay higher interest rate that have borrowed the fracks and be inclined to uh, return uh, their debt, right? To to take the fracks uh, out of the open market and, and repay their debt, so you can expand and retract the supply through these AMOs in a really interesting way. And so far, they've worked great, and we've uh, we've really grown a lot with all of these AMO integrations, and we have uh, a lot of them. So I think this is also another uh, very unique and interesting thing that we've we've kind of developed.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think of AMOs, especially especially the way that you described it, they're basically tools to both either help stabilize the peg of fracks like Curve or expand the use of fracks like the lending a- AMOs? And the more AMOs you have that do that, basically, the more confidence that grows in the system. Uh, is that like a fair way to describe AMOs? Yeah, yeah, I would I would definitely say so. I think so. Okay, cool. And uh, most recently, you launched the Convex Amo, which sounds really cool like i honestly i haven't looked at the convex too much i've seen there's definitely like a little competition it seems like between uh convex and wi-fi uh, i saw a tweet from Rex today called the curve wars they had like a really cool gif about it and stuff so could you both describe like what the convex Amo does and you get more background for for me because i'm like not sure like what the curve wars are really about it's really like a from what I understand, I guess it's a game for more VCRV, right? So convex AML, like how does that work, and like how does kind of these curve wars work in general, and how does like Frax benefit? How does Frax benefit from the curve wars if it does benefit?
1: Yeah, I mean that was a really cool Rect article. Uh, I would I would recommend people read it. It was actually very well researched and and uh, talking about the three big uh, protocols, uh, Wire and Stake dowel, and Convex that are basically uh, fighting to accumulate, uh, CRV tokens and stake it as VECRV, um, that essentially allows them to vote, uh, for, for curved gauges. Uh, it's actually important to note, we actually have a similar mechanic coming out for, for FRAX called VEFXS, uh, gauges, but ours is based on algorithmic stablecoin expansions instead of, you know, just, uh, deck swaps. But, um, to go back to it, yeah, the convex AMO is really cool because it's a modification and uh, add-on essentially to the curve AMO that I just talked about. So for example, going back to the example where the protocol mints 5 million fracks to bring the peg to a dollar uh, and then get 5 million curve LP tokens, well, before the the curve LP tokens might have just been sitting in the AMO address, for example, um, and now, for the convex AMO, for example, the LP tokens get put to work by staking them in convex uh, when the when the peg is uh, sound at a dollar, right? And so Frax is obviously perform extremely well. So most of the time, there there needs to be very little uh, retraction of supply. So most of the time, those LP tokens can can be put to work earning yield, right? And so we deposit those through the Convex AMO in Convex. And we have one for stakeDAO, we have one for wires uh, uh, CRV Frax bolt. And the idea behind that is, well, if the protocol is printing Frax to stabilize its supply, it can also programmatically deploy them places and, and earn yield on it, right? And that's actually eventually goes back to FXS holders, because of uh, our, our feature called FXS1559, which Burns half of the profits and sends the half of the yield to BEFXS stakers. Um, for the convex AMO specifically, we're actually uh, holding on for now to the convex tokens and, and not selling them immediately uh, because we think that you know the protocol having a say in these big protocols itself through kind of uh, meta governance by other FXS holders uh, is very important. At the end of the day, the yield and the CVX tokens and everything these AMOs earn go back to FXS holders, right? Because they either decide how to use them or how to vote with them or, or things like that, or to you know sell them to burn FXS and, and give the yield back to the, the FXS staker. So at the end of the day, all this value goes back to FXS holders. Uh, for now, we're actually investing in kind of the long-term uh, outcome of the the curve and DeFi ecosystem by you know not being a net dumper of, of these uh,
0: tokens, which we think are, are really, really good. Yeah, that could really, you know, benefit Frax and make Frax really powerful one day just holding on to these tokens of these solid projects and like you said with meta governance like having a say in the future direction of them. It's basically Frax is kind of like a uh, like its own party, like its own political party in a way. Uh, and you know the Frax holders are like part of that party, and they get to choose the choose the direction of like where do they want these protocols calls to go in the future.
1: Yeah, and and the other thing that's important to point out here is that uh, Frax is supposed to be an algorithmic stablecoin, and so like as I described, it lives entirely on chain, right? This isn't yeah. uh, a fiat stablecoin, and, and this isn't like a private company; it's a totally decentralized, you know, DeFi. Protocol and what's really important is we, as a as like a project, are in it and aligned in incentives of the long term growth of the DeFi ecosystem, right? Like for example, right now one of the largest farmers and dumpers of uh, convex token and, and CRV tokens is uh, Alameda Research, right? SBF and and the FTX guys. They just they they dump. You know they're they're farming this stuff. Uh, with like 600 million plus uh, dollars of TVL. And then they're just straight dumping it immediately uh, for ETH. And then, you know, probably selling the ETH for cash because they uh, want to spend on big flashy stuff, right? Like the FTX uh, partnerships with uh, Tom Brady recently, and then the Miami stadium and stuff. They're a private company, right? And and they uh, want to build their off chain image, right? They want to build prestige. And so, uh, they they're actually in in an odd peculiar way. Short term, they're short, right? Uh, the success of DeFi and and long uh, their prestige. Short term, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, you can make the argument that um, you know it's bad for crypto if they dump all these things just to take pictures with Tom Brady or something, right? Yeah. But but like but the thing is, and I really want to highlight this because this is very important for everyone listening, is like. Frax needs to grow and be symbiotic and have interests aligned with all of these on-chain protocols that integrate us because we want to be kind of the stable coin of DeFi, the algorithmic, you know, uh, Fed, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Of of On-chain stable coins, right? And we can't do that if all of the protocols know Frax is, oh, they, they just expand the supply and then they, they dump our, our token and, and stuff, right? What mm-hmm. would be the, the point of that? We have a extremely symbiotic uh, and aligned incentive with every single protocol that integrates us and builds uh, you know us into their, their system. And we build an AMO in, in their protocol to expand Frax supply into, which literally means print them free money. Right into, <laughs> into their protocol, like literally, yeah. um, and so that I, I can't stress that enough. We are as symbiotic as, as you can possibly get with every DeFi protocol. So people, you know, listening and uh, considering integrating Frax, it literally pays you know printed money <laughs> right literally. to to integrate uh, us, and we we don't. Dump and and farm and dump the tokens, right? Like we're not uh, SBF in the sense that the Frax is not a private company, right? Frax is an entirely decentralized protocol uh, owned by FXS holders, token holders, on chain uh, people that develop it, like us, and, and volunteers and stuff, and we don't have an incentive to to wreck the protocols that literally just integrated us, right? Like what, why that doesn't even make sense, right? There's no, uh, economic interest. In fact, we have an economic interest in growing all of the protocols <laughs> that we built an AMO for, right? Yeah. Like what would be the point of, of wrecking like uh curve or convex, right? Yeah. We actually want them to become bigger, right? So we can continue our AMOs and they can, can expand money supply and stuff versus, you know, these, these semi, you know, uh, bad actors, short-term, but, you know, long-term, obviously pro crypto where it's like, you, you are literally just industrializing the dumpage of, of these, uh, these coins. And sure, you know, uh, it's obviously a free market. So I'm not trying to say anything, uh, bad in the sense that it's unethical or anything it's totally fine, but it's just, uh, short-term, it's it's in the wrong side, right? And so the thing I want to stress is FRAX is always on the the long-term and, and the right side, short-term and long-term.
0: Yeah, I actually haven't thought about that before, how FRAX's interest long-term really aligns well with the protocols that it participates in. Um, that, that I think that's something really important to highlight because I feel like a lot of people have kind of a negative assumption of people that farm and participate in these protocols. I feel like people just assume that they always dump, whether it's you know, Alameda or or like uh, another protocol or something like that. And that leads me to my next question. So, So Alameda, yeah, they're, you know, they have a business to run and it's in their interest to, you know, farm and sell these tokens, which they use to fund these operations and get these partnerships. Like, what do you think are the cultural kind of consequences and ramifications of FTX, uh, going out and getting all these partnerships, whether it's in the MLB or with Tom Brady or with Miami heat naming the stadium, like they're really, you know, getting into culture in ways. I think a year ago, no one could imagine, no one could imagine an exchange going out and, you know, doing all this. Uh, what do you think are kind of the ramifications of this? Do you think this is Good for crypto. Uh, Like, do you think you know? Do you think the farming and dumping of tokens, uh, short term benefits, kind of the cultural impact of these partnerships, long term? Because these people are going to see FTX for decades.
1: Yeah, I mean, so so let me be clear. I'm I'm a big fan of FTX and and uh, SBF and stuff. They're they're like you said, pushing the culture and and bringing crypto uh, mainstream to be to be a household name. So like. I I totally think that's cool. And and I'm a big fan of it. And what what I wanted to highlight, which is subtle, but it's important is FRAX entirely lives on chain. We actually, Mm -hmm. we don't, uh, you know, focus on, you know, consumer culture, or you're not going to see like FRAX, you know, like, you know, sponsored Miami heat or whatever, and and things like that. uh, Because that's That that, that's irrelevant, right? We want to be Mm -hmm. an on-chain algorithmic stablecoin. Our our decentralization and our uh, crypto-centered ethos is is the most important, right? Like Mm -hmm. you don't see Vitalik trying to, uh, you know, buy the stadium or or something like that. I'm I'm pretty sure enough money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he has enough money to do single-handedly some some pretty crazy things, right? And it's just out of his scope. He doesn't care. It's not something that interests him, right? What I want to like highlight is FRAX exists entirely on chain. Right. Mm-hmm. And so every protocol that integrates us, we're essentially hand in hand long, uh, then right. And yeah. so it's, it's kind of like, you know, yeah. it it's kind of, if you think of it from Convex's perspective, right. Their token is getting absolutely crushed in terms of cell pressure for mm-hmm. the, uh, for the pleasure of, you know, ftx expanding crypto culture uh outward which is great for all of us except to be honest probably not convicts, right if, if <laughs> yeah. like if if i if someone was like dumping fxs tokens frack share tokens right and and was like you know contributing to the absolute like downward pressure of of systematic price decrease of like fxs and and then they said but listen like it's it's so like Tom Brady can, can like, you know, wear uh, my exchanges logo or something, trust me, it's, it's good. It's good. We want, like, I, I still wouldn't do that. Right. It'd be like, no, go, go like figure out some other way rather than completely dump on, uh, you know, my, my project systematically. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not good for convex, right. I think convex is getting the raw deal. Right. (laughs) But, but like, it's good for everyone. In terms of like a grand crypto thing, so I'm I'm a fan of obviously everything they're doing, and again, it's not like what they're what SBF is doing is unethical. It's a free market, right? Yeah. So I, I'm not I'm not attacking in terms of an ethical way. I'm bringing it up because I think it's really uh, actually an important indicator for Frax that any protocol that integrates us can only gain. There is no mm-hmm. there's no place where uh, Frax literally can gain and the protocol like loses whether it's short-term or long term so it's actually mm-hmm. just like a very virtuous
0: cycle for every protocol that that integrates us so that's that's the important thing okay I see what you're saying you really you're using it as a comparison and I think we're both in agreement that the FTX like going out and doing all these partnerships and brand uh, kind of deals and stuff is a net positive for crypto uh, but in terms of the amos uh, you, what future AMOs do you have planned at FRAX?
1: Yeah, so obviously we have a lot of uh, projects that are really interested in, in talking to us, right? Like how how could it uh, not be bullish for anyone that uh, wants to integrate and, and literally get money printed <laughs> to them, right? And, yeah. uh, and, and so right now, actually, one thing uh, we're doing is Iron Bank uh, on Wire. uh Incorporated us, so we're probably going to do a lending AMO uh, with them in the next few weeks, and then which basically mints frax expansions there so they can borrow frax, uh, pay an interest rate. Uh, Iron Bank doesn't require over collateralization because it's like yearn right? Mm-hmm. So they kind of get uh, these under collateralized frax loans, which is which is fine because it's again, it's yearn right? Like they, mm-hmm. they obviously can take out, you know. Uh, Eight-figure loans for, for them—it's it's nothing, right? So mm-hmm. we we start earning interest rates on that. Um, other AMOs we're working on—we have a really cool one uh, building around Uni V3 uh, that employs mm-hmm. kind of like our, our gauge architecture that we're designing. Um, that's coming out soon. Um, excited to
0: to talk about that when we when we launch it. So that's uh, currently taking up most of our R and D. Cool. Can you give any more details about the gauges in Uni V3 or are you going to wait, hold off until it's completely finished?
1: Um, Just a little bit of details is is kind of, it's almost like uh, Curve's gauges, but kind of on steroids in terms of, Mm. it's a very, very, uh, it's like if algorithmic stablecoin met Curve's uh, gauges. And I actually think it's actually very symbiotic and value creative for, for Curve because Although the gauges will start on v 3 first, they're 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 actually agnostic to where uh, they are because FRAX is an algorithmic stable point, So you can have FRAX gauges uh, on anything, including the, the, the curve pool itself. So we, we actually are probably gonna expand to many different uh, things after V3. Uh, so, but our debut will be on uh, Uni V 3 FRAX gauges.
0: Yeah, cool, cool. Speaking of expanding, do you see a future where Frax AMOs are not just on Ethereum, but maybe are on, you know, roll-ups like Optimism or Arbitrum or the ZK rollups, or even side chains like Polygon or Phantom or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're already on many uh, chains in terms of Frax as kind of uh, chain agnostic and multi-chain. It just has its, um, you know, system contracts and, uh, everything on Ethel 1. That's mm-hmm. where I, we think is the most secure to always be located. We're actually already on Phantom, Polygon, uh, BSC. We're launching on Moonbeam, which is a Polkadot uh, EVM chain uh, soon. And we're super excited about that. We, we're we definitely going to be, hopefully, everywhere. Uh, pretty much everywhere. So I think that's going to be pretty huge. We're already working on something uh, really cool on uh, L2 for that one, I am not going to say exactly what it is, uh, mm-hmm. but it's going to be really legit. because so I'm really. Uh, I, it'll also incorporate uh, privacy features, so so it'll actually uh, allow sending of fracks pretty much like cash
0: in terms of privacy. Uh, it's really exciting uh, to hear because I remember several months back we um, wrote the Tornado Cash proposal together, so. I wonder if it has to do with that. You don't have to say but you can like save it for like when it's ready or not. But you know, I think privacy with transactions is really one of like the underlying ethoses of crypto, like being able to send in a private manner, but like still permissionless.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's uh it's gonna kind of complete the L2 vision, right? Like mm-hmm. extremely cheap transactions and fully private. Uh, cash, right? And so, like, with with the security of of ETH L1, it's kind of going to be the holy grail in terms of using something as an actual currency. Plus, combined with the fact that Prax is actually stable, right? So, you Mm -hmm. get stability, low fees, L1 security, and full privacy. So, literally,
0: uh, pretty much everything. So... What are some of the biggest challenges you faced when, you know, building Frax, whether it was in the beginning, in the pre-planning stages with the launch or uh, after the launch. And, you know, it's been live for seven months. Like what are some of the biggest challenges and how are you overcoming them?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think the, the biggest challenge is, is, is basically there's no precedent in the space. Of everything we're building, we're kind of inventing and there's no, uh, there's no one to kind of look up to, which is cool. And it, it just kind of shows that we're one or two steps ahead in, in the Algo stablecoin space, which is great, but it's, it's kind of like you have to actually invent everything as, as you go, like both in theory and in terms of the tech and in terms of, uh, the token economics and, and everything. Right. Uh, like for example, it's it's basically, you know, if, if you're creating, for example, a new proof of stake chain, right. You have all of the proof of stake research and different attempts to draw from and stuff with algo stable coins. All we have to draw on is the stuff to not do, right. Cause, yeah. cause like practice is, <laughs> is, is the only one that's held its peg. And so like, if we're going to do something, we're like, well, hopefully, you know, this is gonna, gonna work exactly as we hope. And, uh, almost all the time. Uh, it does. Um, we're not perfect, but almost all the time it, it always does, but mm-hmm. there's no, uh, sure thing, right. There's no one we can actually look at cause there's no one else is, is, uh, out here.
0: Yeah. That sounds both exciting and terrifying at the same time, because you're carving this own path. You're kind of like, you know, exploring this, like unexplored West, great West, you know, and you're, you're setting the standard, basically, with whether it's the AMOs or, you know, your model, like the fractional model becoming like, hey, this is the model that works with building an algal stable coin, But it's terrifying because you have really nothing. You, not, this hasn't really been tried before. I guess you can look in the traditional finance world, in the old finance world, see what worked there and see like how that could be applied on chain and like what you need to adjust to apply it on chain because. The dynamics are definitely different, but both exciting and terrifying. The I stable stablecoin space and what you guys are doing. Yeah, yeah, but it's exciting. I, mostly I, uh, exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was so another thing you were working, you had a tweet thread about was uh, the consumer price index. Um, you know, can you go? What you can you kind of summarize that thread and how that relates to Frax? Did you guys have talked about? Coming up with your own basically fast pricing index right? Yeah,
1: so that that's a lot of stuff to unpack, but I'll I'll try my best. Basically, I think the the final stage of essentially algorithmic stable coins are uh basically pegging to stability that is not the US dollar. And so a lot of a lot of the newer projects kind of are are thinking of that way, but they're not actually pegging to anything, right? Like Olympus Dow, Rye, uh, Float, all of these other projects that uh, are headed by really smart teams. Most people forget that the dollar is actually loosely pegged and and loosely tracks the consumer price index, which is the U.S. government's definition of the price of a basket of consumer goods uh, that, you know, they basically define Americans as standards of living, right? Like rent uh, consumptive items like food. Uh, let's see what else. like. There's a lot of them, right? Electronics and and things like that. And this basketed indice is supposed to keep the actual relative standard of living, uh, the same across time. Uh, A lot of people, for example, wrongly, uh, say that everything (laughs) is getting more expensive, which I'm not here to debate like the, the inflation uh narrative and stuff. I, I generally agree with it. But for example, they say, oh look, like uh burger was like two dollars or dollar fifty in like nineteen like seventy and now it's like five dollars in two thousand twenty. It's like yeah, but for example, they forget that minimum wage was also like three dollars, right? Yeah. And and so uh so it was everything, right? When when the nominal price of everything uh, goes up in, in, in tandem. And I'm not saying that everything has perfectly gone up in tandem, but again, that's a, that's an inflation debate, right? But what most people forget is that the the consumer price index actually makes sure that a lot of the items that are defined America's standard of living goes up or down, uh, together. So for example, if a burger gets twice as expensive, uh, minimum wage uh, should be looked at and should hopefully start tracking to becoming twice as high, right? Mm-hmm. If, if for example, electronics uh, ends up becoming twice as expensive, then the purchasing power of the dollar should become uh, more expensive or more valuable based on the weight of electronics and the consumer price index, right? Yes. And so that that people's dollars can buy the same amount of electronics across time. Uh that's the idea behind the consumer price index. And we can argue like, you know, ad nauseum about whether it's working as as well as it should or, or not. But the concept is very important because it you know, whether the dollar is uh as good as it can be or not, it is technically right now the best value of stability. It's the thing that eighty percent of global trade is settled in. It's the thing that everyone, uh, uses to talk about, uh, value. It's the SI unit of value, so to speak. Right. And you know, when, when people, Wait, what, talk do about what does SI stand for? Uh, system international, it's like meters, right? Like okay. meters is the SI unit for distance. Uh, joules is the SI unit for, uh, energy. Right. And, and so like, uh, there's a, there's all these things, right. It's like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, I, I just like to colloquially say there's no, there's no unit for economic value, right? There is for like distance, there is for like energy there, there is for, uh, temperature, right? And stuff. exactly. Right. Okay. I just like to call the dollar the the thing that everyone internationally understands as the unit of value. Right. Cause, cause it kind mm-hmm. of is so, yeah, that makes and sense. the reason it is, is because it's kind of loosely tracked to things we care about, right? Like consumptive items, uh, Rent, right? Like food, shelter, and stuff, right? And so I think the next big thing in crypto is actually if you want to fully decentralize and do away with relying on the dollar, uh, and and entirely of that, you have to create your own monetary policy rather than just pegging to the dollar, right? And in order to do that, you need a crypto-native CPI or, or price index, right? And mm-hmm. so that's what we're trying to do with the Frax price index. We're trying to make the first uh, crypto-native uh, price index that FXS holders can govern and essentially, uh, define and projects can essentially peg to that, like that, like how people peg to the dollar, which is kind of a proxy of pegging to the CPI.
0: Mm, cool. Cool. Yeah. The, the whole CPI thing is, I, I think it's one of those things that more people should know about, but they don't like, I honestly didn't learn about this what the CPI was until talking to you like a few weeks ago, a few months ago, but it seems so important. Um, I actually was thinking like, it would be cool if they had a CPI for like common. I mean, there's like certain things in the CPI, whether it's like eggs or chicken or, you know, real estate. Um, I You know, they should really put like Big Macs in the CPI because I think Big <laughs> Macs are quite inaccurate. Even, that might sound ridiculous, but... Big Macs are kind of like an accurate representation of, uh, you know, how much things go up in price. Yeah. A,
1: it kind of started as a semi-joke, but, you know, in, in economics, and it actually ended up,
0: uh, you know, kind of being useful. Yeah. Um, what do you think should go into the CPI? Like, what do you think would make, like, the most accurate represent- representation for, like, people to make, for policymakers to make the most informed decisions in that?
1: Yeah, you know, this is kind of really, uh, a difficult kind of conversation, but basically I I think there's a lot of literature that that can be, uh, read on this, but essentially I think the fact that they don't consider real estate or college expenses and stuff in the CPI is, is pretty, uh, pretty bad. They have, they have obviously reasoning that that sounds fairly all right like for real estate they say it's an investment it's not a consumer item rent like shelter is the actual consumer item so we're just measuring the price of rent which is like okay fine but but that that makes americans unable to own houses more and more right and so we're we're basically seeing home ownership become more and more difficult accordingly right because mm-hmm. they don't include it in the cpi so logically you, you do see that exactly having a result right because that's what the dollar loosely tracks. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think that college education is, is not included, which is not a good thing. Um, and I think real estate should be, even though it's technically that, yeah, they're right. It's not a consumptive item, but I think it should be included in the CPI rather than these other, uh, you know, secondary price indexes. Yeah. I
0: can, I guess I can see the logic with real estate because if, because even though, like, you know, people buy homes, like people do use them as an investment. But at the end of the day, like people are living, whether they're renting or buying, they're living in these homes are doing the same thing. Um, the majority of people are, are doing that. So I think I agree with you there that it should be included. And also it hasn't like whether like people use real estate as an investment or not. Like it definitely has an effect on everyone else. Um, I was watching a video recently about how investment banks uh, now are getting into, or have been getting into, like, the traditional real estate market over the years and, like, you basically have these big banks becoming landlords and and not really, and these tenants are getting, like, living in horrible conditions and, you know, they're not really taking care of the property and, you know, it's kind of, it seems like we're taking, like, steps back uh, compared to, like, 10, 20, 30 years ago in terms of how easy, how easy it was to either own a home or comfortably rent somewhere. So, I don't know. What do you think about that? I guess we're, like, staying away from Frax a lot now. We're just, like, just talking about, like, the economics of real estate and stuff. But I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I, I really don't like where that's headed, right? I, yeah. I think that's getting to uh, a real, like, price index and, and kind of a global, you know, opt-in definition of stability that people can can exit their their dollars into that's actually stable Mm -hmm. uh would would fix stuff like that right i think a lot of the bitcoin narratives like exit hyperinflating fiat and Mm -hmm. go into bitcoin it's a good investment and stuff i i do think bitcoin is a good investment but i think it's a very poor thing to plan uh your life around because it doesn't have stable purchasing power right you can you can make 10 times your money and then lose uh half of it and then uh, lose another half and then 8 exit again. And, and you know, BTC had its most volatile one month in actually May, right? When it had a billion yeah. dollars in market cap, which is absolutely insane, right? <laughs> that is insane, um, yeah. Yeah, so I think that all of these problems with the actual CPI and current issues in, in the U.S. economy can, can really be fixed with, with DeFi.
0: Yeah, uh, you mentioned Bitcoin being money. Uh, I want to get into that. What makes good money? Because you have Bitcoiners make the argument like, oh, like everything is going to be, you know, priced in Bitcoin, or people are gonna just transacting Bitcoin. Like that was the actually original kind of goal and vision when Satoshi, when Satoshi like released the white paper, literally says peer-to-peer cash. Um, and then in the Ethereum world, you have the whole ultrasound money meme, and everybody putting the speaker in the bat, and people are saying, oh, ETH is money. Uh, ETH is money. ETH is money. Um, and in a way, it has become money, especially uh, you know, whether it's in the NFT market or anything that's priced in ETH. So technically, it is money for in these different economies. So, um, what do you think makes good money? Could Bitcoin and ETH become money, um, or do you think they should just kind of stick in our own lane.
1: And- yeah, I mean, I think my own view of, of money or currency is something that keeps your standard of living constant. And I, I think that that's actually the whole point of the CPI, right? It's a, it's supposed to measure important consumptive items that, that part of a good life, right, uh, Americans have come to expect, right? And the government keeps track of those prices. So currency is something that you can actually plan around, you can earn, you can save, you can uh, be pretty sure that, you know, if you have this much money, you can buy around this much uh, of a home or this much of food. And you can be pretty confident that that's going to be the case uh, next year and the year after that, and uh, etc. Right? Now, if you think of literally what the definition of an investment is, it's exactly the opposite of that, right? If it's a good investment, you should be able to Buy a bunch of houses that you can yeah. buy. You should be able to change your standard of living, right? You should be able to, uh, you know, answer the when Lambo question, right? <laughs> if it's a good investment, yeah. it should change your standard of living. So investments are anathema to uh, currency. That's just that's my view. I don't think it's a controversial view when you actually look at what uh, how the dollar works, right, and how actual monetary policy is done you could argue that monetary policy is done poorly, but the intent of it is uh, to keep standard of living fairly the same across time, plus minus a you know inflation factor, uh, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is, is my view. My view is that a currency requires it to be pegged to some uh, standard of living. At the end of the day, that's that's mm-hmm. what humans and meat space care about, right? And so... That's why everyone still does their accounting in in dollars. When stablecoins peg to dollars, transitively, they're pegging to the standard of living monetary policy of the CPI and and what the Fed does, right? Mm -hmm. But we can bring that stuff on chain, right? And that's what the FRAX price index should hopefully uh, be able to do.
0: Yeah, I think that's the most powerful part about FRAX is how everything is on chain. And if you want to see, you know, exactly like how much practice being minted, like, if you want to see you know, the strategy of the AMOs, it's all public, which is really revolutionary, and like really, you know, can help keep the protocol accountable, which is, you know, something that did not exist in the old and basically in traditional finance like, I'm sure you remember like, 10 years ago uh, or even like, more than that, Ron Paul and the Fed, like, opened the books that like, and it's kind of, it's kind of funny, like, in a way, like you're kind of fulfilling Ron, even though Ron Paul's against like central banks, you're kind of like fulfilling his dream in a way of like having everything on chain and everything accountable.
1: You know. Yeah, no, I, I was a Ron Paul fan uh, <laughs> in, in college. So I definitely uh, think that that's a compliment. Yeah,
0: speaking of you in college, that's when you first got into crypto. Um, can you talk about how you first got into the space and what you were up to and like, with your
1: activities and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I first uh, heard about like crypto and stuff back in 2013, which is a super long time ago. Yeah. And you know, I uh, I started mining actually uh, all the altcoins and stuff. Dogecoin was actually the first cryptocurrency I uh, mined right when it actually came out, and I I got really into it, and that's kind of how I first started. Uh, getting into crypto in any sense right and now it's ages ago that's during the first uh, altcoin boom so it's been fun uh and never really did i think that the first crypto that i was mining in dogecoin would be accepted <laughs> by elon to go to mars and
0: interstellar you know <laughs> uh travel but here we are yeah um how do you think you know Uh, crypto has changed since you first started like what are like actually some common themes that you saw like in your first cycle in 2013 then in 2017 and then now like do you see like a common theme in all of them and like what are some differences you see in that
1: well i i think crypto is at least currently uh obviously cyclical although i think it's cyclicality as it becomes a larger part of the macro market will just move with global trends rather than internally with like the next hot thing. So one thing I I noticed is like crypto, you know, there's some new technology that comes out, right? Like in the original altcoin boom, it was, oh, changing and tweaking proof of work, adding extra features to these uh, altcoin things and, and stuff like that. And in the ICO boom, obviously it was smart contracts uh, tokenization of stuff, ICOs and and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then the euphoria kind of dies down to come, you know, comes back down to reality. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, if you kind of look at the current cycle, I would say obviously the euphoria has clearly died down. Um, I wouldn't say that we're in a bull market anymore, but notice how it's tough to say we're, you know, totally bearish or something. It doesn't really feel that way. It kind of feels like people call the crab market, which is like sideways. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that might actually end up becoming more of the trend because crypto is a 1 trillion plus asset class, you know, uh, space and you don't really have, it's too big to be insular and just like, you know, self-circular anymore. It's growth and it's uh, decline actually impacts macro trends and then vice versa. Macro trends actually impact crypto's growth and, uh you know so i think that the cyclicality of it will kind of smoothen out now
0: slowly yeah and another thing i noticed because for me personally like i first heard of crypto back in like 2010 when wikileaks started accepting it because paypal banned them, and i'm just like oh what's this (laughs) um and you know i really you know you'd always hear about it but you know it's, it's it's something like a a big learning curve to like get into it i was fortunate to be working at everpedia in 2017 and you basically you basically we would like lit together and go on these like really long rants about crypto and that's really how i learned about it between that and like just watching videos on youtube and just like being a part of the industry so like that's how i got into it and one thing i've definitely noticed is not how even though it's becoming more integrated and you know macro trends and stuff like in crypto itself things are becoming less correlated um, before I think, because pairs used to be like just with Bitcoin, almost exclusively. So everything would rise and fall with Bitcoin. But now, what I find really interesting is you basically have the bull market is not one singular bull market. Like one area, like let's say NFTs, that could be in a bull market. Meanwhile, DeFi coins could be in a bear market, or Dog coins and meme coins can be in a bull market, and um, other you know coins could be in a bear market, and things are a lot. Less correlated now. Like now, you have these gaming tokens like Axie and Alluvium uh, and Sand. Like they're in a definitely in a bull market right now, and they're getting a lot of interest. Uh, While well, a lot of things are crapping. Um, so it's gonna. It's I guess in the future, it's gonna be interesting to see like what areas within crypto are gonna like be in bull markets. And I guess it's up to you know whether it's speculators or developers and and whatnot to like kind of anticipate
1: that yeah i mean that's good right that's how you actually build a crypto native uh price index right because if everything just moved together then it would kind of be pointless right and you just Mm -hmm. have to track things outside of crypto but if crypto actually is a diverse uncorrelated uh global sector with different kinds of economic activity where one sector is growing another sector might be slightly in decline for the time being. Another one is innovating some new things. You can actually uh, track multiple of these sectors and actually okay. have a, a stable kind of uh, emergent crypto-native currency, right? That, that keeps people's wealth across time. So they're able to do the things they care about and in, in meet meats, space, right, in terms yeah. of buy homes or all these other things.
0: Well, you just saying that really put a you know, let a light bulb go off in my head because that's what the, like you said, that's what the FRAX price price index is about, is tracking, I guess, the standard of living on-chain. and Like, what will go into the standard of living on-chain in the future? But we're kind of seeing the beginnings of it now. So I can see the FRAX price index in the future, like it may include Axie for, you know, representing the gaming part of crypto. It may... Represent some peg to Doge, representing, you know, the mean power part of crypto. It may include Bitcoin, Ethereum. Um, hell, it may even include, like, other, you know, like one. That would be up to the as holders to uh, decide. But that actually makes the, price price, the FRAX price index make a lot more sense in, like, how it functions and stuff
1: yeah yeah exactly i think um i think that it's going to be really unique i also think that the mo- most important thing is the way we're designing this is that it hopefully should not have anything to do with needing oracles or like the oracle solution and stuff which is already such a huge you know a multi-billion dollar kind of thing that you know uh, chainlink is, is leading that and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that so a lot of things people mistake about the FRAX price index is, Oh, why don't you just use chain link to bring the CPI? And it's like, well, that, that's not at all what we're doing. In fact, if, if you want to do that, go do that. It's not going to do you anything. Right. It's, it's not like, it's not like that's uh that's that much of a secret or something. Yeah. Right. And, and so, uh, yeah. So I, the thing with the FBI is it's, it's totally, uh, unique, decentralized on chain crypto native, and it doesn't require, uh, oracle trust right
0: okay he, how does it not require oracle trust cuz how i understand it like i can see how it doesn't because you know what does an oracle chip do it takes off chain data and put it on chain but even though like the data is like all on chain what it what how would the FRAX price index get the prices, when it need to get an Oracle, like where, where would it get that information?
1: Well, it, it would be from on-chain sources, right? So for oh, example, okay. Uniswap and other token prices and other economic activity that's fully on-chain. In fact, okay. one of the cool things we're exploring with the, with the FBI is like, if we wanted to have a global energy component, uh, how much actually energy costs out in the real world, we could actually uh, use Bitcoin proof-of-work difficulty as a proxy. And since uh, verifying Bitcoin blocks uh, doesn't require an Oracle, right, because you can actually just verify those blocks on-chain with an Ethereum smart contract, Uh, you don't actually need
0: an Oracle for that. That's really smart. Uh, that will be interesting, especially now with the hash rate going down because all the miners are moving out of China. Like, If the Flax price index were to be live with, with that feed, (laughs) <laughs> that would be a really interesting dynamic, seeing how that would
1: affect. Yeah, I mean, you you gotta normalize the the difficulty against the market cap of Bitcoin, right? But that should get you a good uh, energy component in the Frax price index, right? Because if Bitcoin price goes down uh, by half and hash rate goes down by half, then the the value of energy presumably is is no different, right? Because the hash rate just followed the profitability decline of mining. But for example, mm-hmm. if Bitcoin price stays the same but for some reason hash rate goes down by half or something uh, most likely what can you assume well if no miners are actually taking the place of whatever reason the hash rate went
0: down it's probably because of global energy prices right mm, yeah good yeah that's a really good point um, okay it's so kind of switching gears here um, so you've been in the space for almost a decade now for eight years eight years. Um, What does it take to be a builder in crypto? And what advice do you have for builders out there that want to get into the space or are just starting off in the space?
1: To be honest, just be technical, right? I mean, that's just, uh, it's pretty direct and, and and clear, right? Like learn how to code, probably solidity. There's a lot of new things. I don't know. People say rust on, on these Mm -hmm. new chains and stuff is good. Uh, I personally, Uh, don't have too much experience in that area because I haven't needed to. But just be technical, both in terms of mechanism design, coding, and and architecture, because the most scarcest asset in the space isn't actually Bitcoin or ETH. It's actually Solidity devs and competent (laughs) engineers, right? Yeah, yeah. like people ask me, like, hey, like, you know, like a, uh, a blockchain. I was like, dude, they're either all like already insanely rich or working on their own thing or they're super smart i I don't think there's hungry like solidity devs or something walking around begging for a job like when people ask me i'm like you don't (laughs) even know the the space right so yeah my my advice is just to become a blockchain engineer yeah
0: for sure like the best way to learn it's just to start building just start doing just start like getting into the code and stuff I, I myself like started taking like teaching myself how to code a little bit trying to just get familiar with smart contracts like i kind of know like my own personal like learning style and i know what i'm good at i'm definitely i know i'm never going to be a world-class coder or anything but being able to become familiar with the terms like you just you know it's literally like a, it's a language the smart contract language literally is this language and if you you know read smart contracts you're gonna pick up on certain patterns and stuff and you're gonna be able to recognize things and that will give you a big advantage over other people that maybe aren't familiar with that. Also, you know, something that's less hard is just using these DeFi protocols themselves, and just or even simpler than that, just like holding Bitcoin and sending it. If you just hold it, you know, in your own personal wallet and send it, like you're farther farther than most people. So if, like anybody that wants to get out in the space, it's just and it's more just like actually going out and doing it. Rather than just sitting on the sidelines and stuff.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, same like you're saying, like just taking custody of your stuff, getting into it, and and just teaching yourself is, is the biggest thing, to be honest.
0: Yeah. So uh, outside of Frax, uh, what other projects excite you in the space, or and whatnot? There's so many, right? And <laughs> there's so obviously.
1: Many. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, what you guys are working on at, at Gelato is really cool, especially with the new Uni-like V3 uh, automated G unit kind of products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think just like a lot of DeFi protocols that I think are interesting, I, I really like the these new things like Hop Exchange, which is like an L2 kind of Thor chain-like uh, project. Uh, oh. Some of our, our friends are working on like polymer, which is still in stealth. So I don't know how much I can reveal that, but it's mm-hmm. it's essentially uh, kind of like a Thor chain like IBC. Um, these things I think are going to be really cool to finally bridge uh, the the L twos and different chains together.
0: I think you know L twos and the bridges between them are huge, you know, huge opportunity. And still, like it's new, but it's still unexplored and i'm still to be honest learning about it like the mechanics of how it works and you know what is the best way to go about and executing it and it's kind of you have to have this balance you know between like how permissionless i mean how yeah permissionless i guess uh, a bridge can be kind of like what you know about l2s and like the bridges between them i mean
1: yeah i mean to be honest there hasn't really been a full l2 really launched, except for hopefully soon, Arbitrum and, and Optimism, right? Like yeah. Polygon is really cool. We're deploying a lot of stuff on there, but currently their bridge is like an Emsig, right? And, and obviously they're gonna build a lot of stuff and it's gonna be, I'm a big fan. Actually, I, I think Polygon is the, the first big project to not be antagonistic to Ethereum, right? And actually mm-hmm. be uh, symbiotic, right? Yeah. Like, Bridging is one of the most important things and it always lags behind the actual uh, on-chain tech. So I've actually been watching that space. Some of my favorite stuff is in this kind of uh, bridging liquidity, bridging tokens and, and things like that. And that's where I think a lot of value will be created. This, I think those tokens, uh, algorithmic stable coins, uh, automation, those are kind of the, the big tokens to kind of accumulate during this kind of Non-bullish uh, phase of the market, so that during mm-hmm. the next bull run, it's uh, they're gonna have
0: outsized returns. Yeah, I I think right now it's definitely like very healthy for what the market is doing, like where we're at now. Because you know, it's all this stuff comes in waves, and like you said earlier, it's cyclical. Like you know, there's a lot of excitement. New people get into the space, but when there's when things increase in value, you attract a certain kind of person that basically have short-term goals and ambitions. And when things go, get rough, they're immediately out. But I think what's cool about each of these waves is, you know, there are people that stay, and there are people that build, and there are people that, you know, they stick around and they end up doing really cool things, and they bring kind of like a new perspective that maybe older people in crypto haven't thought of. So, it, you know, it's going to be interesting to see like what comes out of, the, you know, this next phase of the market and crypto development. And, you know, what will be like the big thing that hooks people again?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's going to be really cool to see the trends, like you were
0: saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're, we're closing in on an hour. We just passed an hour, 15 minutes, which is actually pretty, pretty solid interview. Um, do you have, a uh, you know, any final thoughts, uh, any more uh, scoops you want to give us at the DeFi scoop? Um, uh, or anything like that well
1: i mean we're we're working on some really really cool stealth and semi-stealth stuff at Frax. so i'm really excited to launch the gauges recently so uh that's that's my that's my main scoop is check us out and just look at some of the stuff we're building because there's a lot of alpha hidden in between the lines
0: yeah and one last question um so you know, both of us were at Everpedia for you know, and you still you know are involved with the project. What's your favorite memory from uh, Everpedia back in those days?
1: Uh, honestly, there's so much, but I'd say <laughs> probably sleeping on the ground, uh, working seven days a week, but with everyone because we all lived together, right? And it was like a classic, uh, you know, uh, Silicon Valley style like internet startup life, which is uh, yeah. I sometimes miss that, but I also sometimes don't miss sleeping on the ground. But, but it was, it was fun. It was, uh, yeah. it was, you know, very, very memorable.
0: Oh, for sure. Like you had the ground, I had the top bunk in my room, you know, it was just, you know, when I describe people, what my time was like in early days of Everpedia, I say it was a mix between the Facebook movie and Fight Club. <laughs> like, cause we were, you know, we were at the start of life, but we were all like so committed to it working seven days a week, you know, just trying to figure out like what to do and like how to make it. And so like, it's cool to see like how much you've grown personally, like over the, how long I've known you for like the past five years. Um, And it's going to be really exciting to see like what you do in the future, especially with all this stuff going on with tracks and and beyond.
1: Thanks brother. Yeah. I'm excited to see what you guys do at
0: uh, Gelato as well. Exciting times. Definitely have some big stuff in the works at Gelato, but anyways, Thank you so much, Sam, for coming on. This was a really great episode. Uh, you know, a lot of great information here, both about crypto and even about economics and whatnot. So thank you for having coming on and hope to have you on again soon. Thanks, man. Take care. See you soon.